Well, let's open our Bibles to the book of Luke, please. Luke chapter number 1. This is where we began last Sunday and looking at the first four verses. Now we begin at verse 5 of Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read down through verse 25. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 25. I, I hate so very much to have to pause occasionally and take a drink. It is not... Uh, is not something I'm comfortable doing when I get into my preaching mode, but I, for the last couple of days, can slowly feel my voice just saying goodbye, and so I need to just to get through today. It is water. I've not put anything else in here to spice up the sermon. This is why I brought a clear water bottle so you would know what I'm drinking. Luke chapter 1 and verse number 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah, of course, was troubled when he saw him. Fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. But he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in, spirit, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. You've got to appreciate how he spoke about his wife. He said, I'm an old one. She's just advanced in years. Very respectful. But she was old too. <laughs> and the angel answered, verse 19, and said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you, to bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which were be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. To take away my reproach. 
from among the people. Well, last week we began our journey (coughs) through the Gospel of Luke, what has been noted as one of the finest pieces of historical writing in all of ancient literature. Along with Matthew, Mark, and John, it's one of the four Gospels, and it's the longest of all the books of the Bible in the New Testament. And it's the only one that's written by a non-Jew. Luke was a Gentile doctor and a missionary companion of the Apostle Paul. And he is writing this gospel for the purpose of introducing Gentiles to Jesus. He wants the rest of the non-Jew world to know that Jesus Christ is not just a Savior for the Jews. He is a Savior for all nations. And that's why the Gospel of Luke is so significant to us. Because unless among us you are of Jewish descent, the rest of us are Gentile people. And it is important that we know that God's plan of salvation extends also to those of us who are non-Jews. After spending the first four verses informing his readers about the kind of account that his gospel is, Luke is now at verse 5 ready to begin telling the gospel narrative of Jesus Christ. And he's going to do so by going all the way back before the birth of Jesus to the birth of Jesus' cousin, his name, John. He will come to be known later on in the narrative as John the Baptist. And this is where we spend our time this morning as we continue Luke's orderly, reliable account of the life of Christ. I want you to notice with me a few things. Number one, we see first of all a childless couple. A childless couple. This is verses 5, 6, and 7. And the couple that we begin with here, that Luke begins with, is Zechariah and Elizabeth. Here's what Luke tells us about them. He tells us that Zechariah was a priest. In fact, when you read ahead, as we will get there here next week, verse 39 indicates that he was a, hold on to this, a mountain priest. He and Elizabeth, verse 39 says, the scripture says, they lived in a small town in the hill country. People like my father who is from the hills of West Virginia who literally grew up in a holler. Their high school mascot were the Man High Hillbillies. He loves the fact that what we have here is a hillbilly mountain preacher in Luke chapter 1. That's what Zechariah was. He was a hillbilly. He was a mountain priest from the hill country. The emphasis here is so that we can see that he was a humble man, a humble man who was involved in the ministry of the Lord. Not only was Zechariah a priest, but he married into a priestly family. His wife Elizabeth, Luke 1 tells us, was from the daughters of Aaron. So she had a priestly heritage, no doubt. Her father was also a Levite, a priest. Now, it wasn't required for priests to marry into priestly families, but this was the dynamic of their marriage. She was a preacher's wife. Now, Luke tells us that they were both, as we see here, 
righteous before God. Both of them, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were righteous before God. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This is, that is, Zachariah and Elizabeth, without a doubt, a godly couple. They were both righteous, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But that doesn't mean that they were sinless. It doesn't mean that they were perfect. That description of their character simply means that their lives were wholly dedicated to God and His Word. Zechariah and Elizabeth were a couple who obeyed God. They were a couple who served God faithfully. And let me just take a time out here to say you don't have to be from a priestly family in order to serve God faithfully and obediently. They certainly give us that example, and our study of Old Testament history tells us even in the house of a family like Eli that not everybody in the home served God faithfully and obediently, but this couple did, and it is a plea for you and I this morning also to serve God faithfully and obediently. What a wonderful introduction to this godly home that we are given already, but by the time we meet them, In Luke chapter 1, Luke points out that they are both advanced in years. That is, we meet them as an elderly couple. We don't get to see them in their youth. We don't get to know about how they met. Uh, We don't see them enjoying their 30s and 40s. No, he goes right to the fact that this is an elderly couple couple. Now, everything I've just pointed out to you that Luke is unveiling for us is pivotal to what is the most significant fact about them as it relates to the story Luke is unfolding. And that is, verse 7, Elizabeth was barren. That is, this couple were childless. They were a childless couple. My wife and I understand for a season of our lives what it is like to be childless, not because of our desire for that. In fact, our desire was to have children, and for a great deal of years, I believe it was around eight years of our marriage, we were unable to have children until God blessed us with four. Now we're looking for any of you to take one of them off of our hands. We know what that's like for a season, but I want you to put yourself into their shoes for just a moment. This was an elderly couple coming to the end of their life. They have no children. They've not been able to experience the fruit of children. They were a childless couple. In the Jewish culture, of course, this was a mark of shame. It's different than our culture. But in this culture... The ancient Jewish culture was a mark of shame because God had promised to make his people Israel fruitful as a sign of his blessing. It was a sign of his blessing. So so when a couple was barren, it carried a stigma publicly in addition to the personal heartbreak and disappointment that they no doubt experienced in their infertility. But the text has already said that they were righteous people. It's already made it clear to us before we see that they were barren that they were blameless in their holiness and godliness. So her barrenness is not the result of sin. Her barrenness is the result of the purposes of God. 
And we see that this desire for a child is something that Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed for their entire lives. But now, at their age, the prospect of having a child, humanly speaking, is frankly impossible. Luke is setting this up because he wants us to understand all of the circumstances regarding the arrival of the Son of God and how the circumstances that marked his arrival were challenging circumstances. They were difficult circumstances. Some would flat out say impossible situations. Not just in Zacharias and Elizabeth's barrenness, but also in direct relation to the political climate of the day. Sometimes we read these things and we pass over them rather quickly when we need to stop and understand what they're wanting us to know. You see, the narrative surrounding Jesus' birth is going to take place, according to verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Who is Herod? Herod was known for his luxurious building projects. He was... For lack of a better term, a commercial real estate businessman. He renovated the temple. He built a bustling harbor, an entertainment venue in Caesarea. He built a huge fortress in Masada, among many other massive projects. That's how he rose to fame. That was his niche, if you will. But Herod was a cruel man. He was a very wicked man. This is the same Herod who will order the death of all the Jewish male children after he hears about Jesus' birth because he felt challenged by the idea that someone else was being called a king. Now, why, why do we need to know all this? Because Paul tells us in Galatians that God sent forth his son Jesus into the world. Here's the biblical verse. In the fullness of time. At just the right time, the time that God ordained it, the time that God had planned it, the time that was perfect, maybe not on man's calendar, but on God's calendar, that is when God sent Jesus into the world. But humanly speaking, that particular time was not the best of times. It was not easy circumstances through people whose lives were not perfect. But this is how the Lord often chooses to work, church family. He uses humble people from unlikely places in challenging circumstances. Luke wants you to know that not just a baby named John was born who will be the cousin of the Messiah. He wants you to know how God brought that baby into the world. He used humble people, a hillbilly mountain priest, a humble man who went through a lifelong trial of barrenness in a society where it was not the best of times to live for the God of Israel. But yet, this is how God works. We don't have to wait for the time to be just right, by the way, in our terms, for God to use us. God is willing to use anyone who is wholly dedicated to him regardless of the circumstances of our lives. All right? 
More on that a little bit later. So we see first a childless couple. Secondly, we see an answered prayer. All right? An answered prayer. This is verses 8 through 17. This is the bulk of the message. On the day that Zechariah, according to verse 8, was to serve in his priestly duties, he was chosen at random, the verse says, by lots to go into the temple and burn incense. It's hard for us, okay, in this New Testament age of grace to relate to the significance of what all of this meant, okay, because these are practices that are in the old covenant era, all right, but we need to understand them. Because the significance of this is that there were a lot of priests. There were thousands of priests. And not everyone could do all the duties all the time. So what they would do is they would cast lots to determine who had what duty on what day. And the honor of burning incense inside the holy place was the most coveted and glorious experience of all the duties that a priest would perform. And that's because it's the closest any priest would ever get to the presence of God with the exception of the high priest who went into the holy of holiest place once a year on the day of atonement. All the other priests, the closest you could ever get to the presence of God was going into the temple and serving the offering of the burning of incense. And the fact is, historical records teach us that many priests never even had the privilege to do this. And no priest was ever allowed to do it more than once in their lifetime. So this is a big deal. This is a major, major event for Zechariah's life and ministry. A day that he would no doubt never forget. I mean, when... When Elizabeth packed his lunch for the next week and sent him out of the country to make that long journey to where the, the temple was to perform the duties, uh, maybe there was a conversation. Hey, maybe the, maybe the lots will finally find my way. I mean, this was the peak, the climax of the career of the priest. Maybe this will be the week that I'll get to burn the incense. I've never done it before. Oh, man, wouldn't that be awesome if God would allow me to do it before death comes to my life? Well, it comes time for Zechariah to enter into the holy place and joyfully offer the burning of incense as a prayer to God. The lots fell to him. And the people, as you will notice here in verse 10, they were outside the temple joining in corporate prayer. At the same time, the burning of incense was offered to God. And that's the whole symbolism of the burning of incense, right? We don't have time to walk through all the pieces of furniture in the temple. But the burning of incense was a sign of intercession to God. It was a sign of prayer. So the priest would go in, burn the incense. They, he would pray. And the people outside the temple who could never go into the holy place, they would pray outside. So what we have here is this beautiful scene of people coming together, both the corporate gathering as well as the priest. And they are together praying as they seek God for the fulfillment of his promises, particularly the sending of a Savior, the sending of a Messiah who would come. And rescued them. And so Zechariah walks into the holy place. No doubt he looks over and he sees the table of showbread and the, and the golden candlesticks. And there the, the magnificent drapery of the veil that hidden just behind it was the holiest of holy places. He gets to walk as close to that veil as anybody could ever walk. And there he finds his place standing before the table of incense. 
He's performing his duties. When all of a sudden, an angel shows up. And he shows up in the presence of Zechariah. Notice what the verse says. Standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, let me tell you. This is not just a life-changing experience. This is a world-changing experience. Because what this angel is going to share with Zechariah will set into motion the God-ordained events that will bring to earth the Savior of the world. Now, now look at verse 12. When the angel appears, verse 12 says, Obviously, Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel. And fear fell upon him. Of course it did, right? When you study the Bible, this is the standard response of anyone in the Scriptures who experienced the appearance of an angel. They were scared to death. What is it that I'm looking at? Fear. Imagine a supernatural being making his appearance in front of you. I don't think you're going to stand there and say, oh, wow, what a glorious thing. No, you might scream like a little girl. It's fascinating to hear people talk about angels, appearing to them especially. But let me tell you something. If an angel appeared to any one of us in its radiant glory, we would respond with the same paralyzing fear that everyone else in the Bible responded with. So don't glance over this. It's like, okay, that was just his experience. No, that was everybody's experience. An angel shows up, and they are scared out of their minds. They're afraid. And here's what the angel says to Zechariah. Several things. Follow along with me. Verse 13. The first thing he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Okay? So fear is the standard response, right? Do not be afraid is the standard message. Look, look, look at all these appearances in the Old and New Testament. All right? Angel shows up. No matter which angel it is, no matter who, who, who it is, we're going to see it again with Mary and Joseph. Angel shows up. People are afraid. Angel had to say, oh, don't, don't be afraid. All right? This is the standard greeting of all angel-human-being interactions. And then he says, your prayer has been heard. What a lovely message. You ever have those moments in your life where you know my prayer has been heard. It may not have been an angel who showed up and said your prayer has been heard, but you just know God came through. My prayer has been heard. And specifically here, he's referring to the prayer that Zechariah has prayed his entire life. His wife, after all these years of barrenness, is going to have a baby. She's going to have a son. And he gets real specific about that. He tells that as Gabriel tells Zechariah, look, follow along with me. You shall call his name John. John, that's what you're going to call him. Now, we're going to come back to the meaning of the name here in just a moment. Let me just tell you what it is. John means the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. More on that in a moment. But what the angel is saying here is that this young man is going to serve a very unique purpose in preparing the world for God's grace. The Lord is gracious. He is giving you a son. And to show his grace, his name shall be called John. And in the very next phrase, Gabriel says, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So we obviously understand there's the natural joy that comes in the birth of a child, right? Zachariah and Elizabeth are going to be overwhelmed with joy that they have in this child. This child is going to bring them joy, but not just in the birth of a child. He says here, others will rejoice 
at his ministry. And that's because this man, this baby, as he grows older, he's going to bring a message from God during a time period. Listen. During a time period, he's going to bring a message from God during a time period when Israel had experienced 400 years of no messages from God. We're talking about the closing of the Old Covenant period in the book of Malachi. Malachi was the last prophet to speak. And God has not spoken to Israel for 400 years. 400 years of silence. And now God is going to bring a new prophet on the scene who is finally going to break through the veil of silence and speak on behalf of God to his people once again. And that is why the very next phrase, the angel says, is the reason why John is going to be great. He's going to be great before the Lord. Isn't that what Jesus said of John? Jesus said, fast forwarding to Luke, in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. None is greater than John. And then he gives Zacharias some instructions. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Listen, I could, I could, I could preach a whole topical message on the, 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 the tragedy of abortion just from that evidence right there. That in the womb of a mother, God sovereignly filled this child with the Holy Spirit of God. Think about that for a moment. That is, John is going to be set apart for a special ministry from God. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were responsible for instilling in him the spiritual disciplines necessary for John to fulfill that ministry. Kind of like what we did today with the baby dedication, right? What God is saying as we commit our kids to the Lord. Lord, we want you to use them for your divine purposes. And as parents, we take on the responsibility to make sure that we're doing everything that we need to do to keep them prepared for however God wants to use them. That's the message he's telling Zachariah. Don't give him strong drink. Don't give him wine. Make sure he lives his life acknowledging the filling of the Holy Spirit in his life. That way when he gets older, he can use him exactly the way that I have set him apart to be used. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This was the purpose of the prophet. He's going to turn many to the Lord their God. How is he going to do this? Well, the next phrase says, Gabriel says, he's going to go before him, before Jesus. He's going to go ahead of him. He's going to tell the world about him. He's going to prepare the way for him, and he's going to do it in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, Elijah's not going to come and fill John. He's using a, a comparison. He says, remember Elijah's ministry? Remember how bold he was? Remember how he stood in the face of the prophets of Baal and he just preached forth God's truth, not caring what they might do to him? That's the kind of preacher he's going to be. He's not going to tiptoe around the truth of Jesus. No, he's going to go out there and eat the craziest diet these Jewish people have ever seen. He's going to wear leather they've never even heard of. And he's going to baptize people in the water. And he's going to preach with power and the conviction, the same voice of conviction that Elijah preached. Here's what he's going to do. Look at the last phrase there. He will make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Oh, so much truth in that. He will make ready for the Lord. Okay? John wasn't the Lord. John wasn't the Messiah. He was the one sent by God to prepare others for the Messiah. This is John's ministry. 
He's going to make ready for the Lord's birth. He's going to make ready for the Lord to save his people. Now, this is not only perceived as an answer to Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer, but this, as a reminder, has also been the prayer of Israel. This whole pronouncement by the angel of Gabriel is fulfilling a prophecy that has been shared for thousands of years that one would come and prepare the way for the arrival of the Savior. One of the reasons we know that the Messiah will be born is because one is going to come ahead of him and make the way ready. He's going to prepare everybody to see the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. It was a prophecy. This is why they're gathered in the temple praying. This is why they're there. They're asking God, fulfill that promise. Send us the Messiah. Send us the one who's going to prepare the way. We need your salvation. We need your redemption. Fulfill your promise. That's the whole purpose of the prayer. So he's not only answering Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer by giving them fruit in their womb. He's also answering Israel's prayer by fulfilling the promise. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 5. Before the glory of the Lord will be revealed, there will come a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord to make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The final book of the Old Testament, Malachi or Malachi, a friend of mine used to call it, declares the same prophecy before that 400-year period of silence. He began saying, I will send you a prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord will come. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. And now, in Luke 1, we're here. God has finally answered the prayers of his people. The prophet that he said would come has just been announced to Zechariah as his child. Zechariah's child. That is going to be born in the most unlikely of circumstances. But in the ordained timing of God. But I have to be honest as we close this out. This scene ends in somewhat of an anticlimactic fashion. So write down number three. A chastened servant. Or a disciplined servant. Or Zechariah gets a whooping from God. It's verses 18 through 25. So perhaps we expect, as the angel says this to Zechariah, for him to jump up and down in complete amazement at this message that was just delivered to him. But unfortunately, Zechariah's response to the message of God is very much similar. And I want you to listen to me. It's very much similar to how often we respond to the message of God's word. Verse 18, this is his first words. How can I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is old too. In other words, are you kidding me? I can't be sure of this. This is not possible. I'm an old man. My wife is an old woman. This can't happen. Zechariah is doing what you and I often do when we hear God's message. We doubt God. We doubt Him. It's not possible. Now, let's be honest and not get too, uh, 
too rough on old Zachariah because we understand his doubt, don't we? I'm sure there are some dynamics of marriages in this room. If you found out your wife was expecting today, you would be as shocked as all of us are. And we're not surprised by it. We understand it, right? Because we far too often doubt also. And the sad reality about our doubt is that it often surfaces with much more evidence than even someone like Zechariah had. But here's why he should have never doubted. A couple of things I wrote down. Number one, he should have never doubted because he was a godly, faithful man who knew the Scriptures. He should have never doubted because he knew the Scriptures. You see, this scenario, from the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, to the birth of Samuel, Hannah, and Elkanah, This is not uncommon for the Lord to perform. It is not uncommon through Old Testament history to see God touch the womb of those advanced in years. He knew that, Zechariah did. He knew the Scriptures. He was a faithful, godly man who understood those stories. He could have concluded in this moment that since God has done it before, He can do it again. But he didn't. Instead, he said, I don't think that's possible. Now, you look right here at me. Far too often in my life, I look at things in this book without truly believing God did it before, he can do it again. Culture's different. People's different. It's just not possible. So, again, let's not get too hard on Zechariah because we often respond the same way. He shouldn't have doubted, however. He knew the Scriptures. He knew what the Scriptures said. But we know what the Bible says. We should accept it as possible with God. Another reason he should have never doubted is that he was actually offering a prayer when this message came to him. I think this is what happens to us at times. Our view of God and the power of prayer is much smaller than it needs to be. Zachariah is praying while he's praying, no doubt. For the coming of the Messiah, an angel shows up and says, hey, guess what? What you're praying for right now, it's here. It's coming. And I'm going to use you to make it happen. And he actually didn't believe what he was praying about. Now let that sink in for a moment. He was praying it, but he didn't actually believe what he was asking God to do. And could it be that we often miss out on answered prayer because we neglect to actually believe God can do it? It's not because we're not asking him for it. It's because deep down inside we feel like it's too late, too impossible, too screwed up. Oh, he shouldn't have doubted because because thirdly, he was confronted by a being that he knew to be a messenger from God. Now, we don't have those same appearances. We don't have angelic beings to give us messages from God. But we do have the completed message of God, His Word. So when we have a direct message from God's Word, we need not ever doubt it. We need not ever question it. We need to be leery of those who said, God told me to do something, and it's not found in Scripture specifically what God told them to do. It's possible but I'm not going to take that to the bank. 
What I will take to the bank is what this book says. You show it to me in the Bible. God told you to do what he said to do. God fulfilled a promise in your life. He said he would fulfill. Then we will believe it as God's word. Angelic beings don't show up and tell us, God told me to do that. You might have had a little bit too much pizza the night before. But God does speak to us through his word. And we have his completed word. So like Zechariah, we shouldn't doubt God because we have his message. Zechariah shouldn't have doubted God because he had his message. But like Zechariah, we do. But God in his love and grace corrects our unbelief, thankfully. He proves his word to us. Let, let me summarize the rest because I've got to move on, move on here. Finish this up. Gabriel stops him and says, look, I'm Gabriel. I just want you to know. I stand in the very presence of God. He sent me to speak this message of good news to you. Hey, we, we, we have the same application in our lives. When you begin to doubt what God has put in his word, what you need to understand is that God is saying to you, hey, this word is the word of God. It came from the presence of God itself. This is God's message for us. Don't doubt it. Don't question it. It came from the very mouth of God, the breath of God. This is his word from his very presence. That's what Gabriel is saying. Don't question this message. I stand in the presence of God. I came from the presence of God. He sent me with this message from him. But because you don't believe, Zachariah, you're going to be silent and unable to speak until your son is born. So get this, ladies. This is something that some of you probably wish would have happened. Her husband is going to experience nine months of silence during her pregnancy. How many of you would be honest and say, man, I wish my husband would have experienced nine months of silence during my pregnancy. If that would have happened, I think some of you would have more children than what you have. <laughs> right? It's this punishment. You can't talk about this. You're not going to be able to speak for nine months. Now, here's the deal. Imagine this situation for a moment. Zachariah's been away from home on his priestly duties. When he left the house, he could talk. And Elizabeth doesn't know one thing about anything that's happened today. He's not even going to be able to tell her when he gets home that he was chosen for that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go to the altar of incense. I don't know about you, fellas. Sometimes things like that happen to me, and I, I can't wait to get home and just, hey, Kathleen, you're not going to believe this. This happened. That happened. You know, we're, we're like that in our relationships, right? He's not even going to be able to do that. He's not going to be able to say one thing about what he experienced. And he won't be able to tell her anything about the angel and his message. Now, my mind goes places when I think about these things. And I'm not going to do that this morning. I'll leave it for your own mind to figure out how in the world, at their age, he convinced her that this was going to happen when he couldn't talk to her and how all that came about. All right, we'll just, let's just let our own imaginations figure that out. He didn't know sign language, so something had to happen. I don't know if it was flowers and music, but something happened, all right? Something happened. Because he couldn't talk about it. He couldn't talk about it. Are you with me? He can say, Elizabeth, you're not going to believe this. I got, I, got, I got picked by the lots to go in and burn the incense. It's unbelievable. I know I'll never be able to do it again. But, 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 I, but I got to do it. It was amazing. I was right there next to the presence of God. You're not going to believe this. When I was standing there, this angel showed up. And he said, you know what? I'm Gabriel. I came for the presence of God. And God said, we're going to have a baby. Let's go have a baby. You know, and I'll, he couldn't do any of that. He could not do any of that. 
He can't talk at all. Now, I want you to notice two things as we close it up. And I really want to encourage you with this because this is, this is how the Lord showed, showed me through the, the scriptures, the emphasis that Luke is making, that this is what he was doing, all right? Here's, here's what I wrote down for my own well-being. God chastens us when we doubt him, okay? That's proven. That's Bible. God chastens us when we doubt him. As a father, he lovingly corrects our unbelief so that we can learn to trust him more and more and never doubt him again. Now, we do, but that's the purpose of his chastening. He's not judging us. He's not judging Zechariah. He is chastening him as a father because he wants Zechariah to believe him the next time he's confronted with an impossible situation. That's why God does it in our lives. All right? So God chastens me when I doubt him. That's, that's, that's what I wrote down. The second thing I wrote down is like Zechariah, the Lord's chastening in my life is a sign of his promise. Like Zechariah, the Lord's chastening in my life is a sign of his promise. So, so, so follow this. Zechariah is experiencing this because God wanted him to know that the whole thing is true. Even when he doubted that it could happen. Now, that ought to fascinate you. That when Zechariah doubted, the angel didn't say, never mind then. Well, find somebody else. Aren't you glad that God doesn't kick us to the side in the purposes that he has ordained for us, even when we're struggling to make sense of it all? In our weaknesses, in our unbelief, in our lack of faith. How am I going to get through this? How am I going to reconcile this? How is this possible? God says, listen, I'm going to send you through a little something because you don't trust me. But I'm not going to remove the purpose from your life. In fact, the chastening is to show you that what I said is going to happen. And you're going to believe me. You're going to believe me. It's the same thing when God disciplines us. When God disciplines us, Hebrews says it's a sign that he saved us. It's a sign that we are his children. It's a sign that he will make us like him. So this chastening was not God taking that purpose away and giving it to somebody else. No, the chastening is God saying, all right, buddy, we tried to do this the easy way. But since you made this difficult... I'm still going to prove it to you, but you're not going to like it how I'm going to prove it to you. Well, Elizabeth conceived, verse 24 and 25. She worshiped the Lord for giving her favor and taking away the reproach of her barrenness. There's more to the story, by the way, which also means the fulfillment of old prophecy. It's, it's, It's truly all a gift of graciousness that we'll come to next week. But here's what we need to remember. In all of God's gifts to us, the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious in all of his gifts. Okay? What did the angel say the name of John meant? The Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Now, follow this and we're going to pray. The Lord is gracious in spite of our circumstances. Herod, barrenness, old age. 
You're going to call him John because the Lord is gracious to you, even when you don't think your circumstances are conducive for it. The Lord is gracious to answer our prayers. The angel shows up. Your prayer has been heard. Oh, look around at your life. God even answers prayers that you didn't even pray for. How gracious of our God to answer our prayers. How gracious of our God to give us things we didn't even know we needed to ask for. The Lord is gracious to prepare us for him. The angel said, John will go before Jesus. He will make ready for the Lord. Think about the people in your life. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was another pastor. Maybe it was a co-worker. Maybe it was somebody that you loved, a close friend. God brought them into your life to prepare you to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious to do that even in this hour, even in this moment, to bring you to this place where your heart can be prepared for Christmas, where your heart can be prepared to believe and trust the Messiah, where your heart can make ready for the Lord. The Lord is gracious to prepare us for him. And the Lord is gracious to prove himself in our doubts and weaknesses. Oh, think about this. The Lord is so gracious even when it hurts to prove himself in our doubts and weaknesses. This is his chastening, and his chastening is grace. And in the case of Zechariah, we will see in the verses to come that after the Lord's chastening, he will be restored. He'll find his voice again, and it'll be one of the glorious Christmas songs of all time. And maybe we should leave with that this morning. Maybe you're going through a little chastening from God. He's not done with you, your life, your marriage, your children, your career, and all of that. He's just saying, if you'll just stay with me, you're going to come out of this singing a greater song than you've ever sung before. Which begs the question, are you ready for the Lord? Every experience of your life is to make you ready for the Lord. Come to him. I beg you, before you harden your heart and fall forever away from the living God. Let's stand together for prayer this morning.